Welcome to my season four wrap up. This season featured 16 conversations with dads, which may seem odd for a podcast on overcoming working mom burnout. But I truly believe that if dads who have experienced full-time caregiving are in leadership positions, they will help create the workplace systems change that will benefit mums and prevent burnout. And not only can such men create better workplace conditions, but when they are on leave or focusing more on their family, they will allow more space for women to rise instead of burning out before they get there. We know that when dads take paternity leave, they have a strong bond with their children, but also working mums have a more positive trajectory when they return to work. I had not expected to hear so many other benefits of being an active dad, including mental health benefits for dads. As some of my guests pointed out, we have to start showing dads why they should do this for themselves, not just for their family or society at large. I've met so many dads since who experienced so much joy in parenting. While my husband and I love our children, mostly our conversations are dealing with problems around the kids, whether that's scheduling conflicts or mental health issues. To be honest, we're looking forward to two weeks this summer when the kids are going away. I know we all need breaks and it's okay to take them and look forward to them, but I do wonder what we can do to find more joy in parenting. We have tried to do less and be more present. I also think it's important to accept that parenting is difficult when we're both CEOs without family around to support and with the kids at challenging ages. I also didn't expect to have so much empathy for the men, which I think is such an important reminder of the importance of stories to elicit empathy. To be honest, I've been pretty pissed off at my husband at various times, and I think the burden on parenting falling on my shoulders contributed to my burnout. I remember when I had to return from a work trip abroad early because he was too stressed with the kids. Nowadays, I try to get him to do dad duty at the weekends because during the week, he struggles more. I have also been frustrated that he couldn't step up to share more of the parenting load. When we used Eve Brodsky's Fair Play cards, I realized he does many of the practical tasks in our family, but he did not hold many parenting cards. He didn't want to step up because of how I criticized his parenting. So I had to own that. And now I try to leave him to solo parent and I take a break rather than to share tasks on a daily basis. I deal with all the kids' activities and school-related activities. I tried sharing these, but he could not keep on track. He has strengths in different areas. When COVID hit after a short quarantine, he was back in the office, an essential communications worker, not on the front line, but not helping at home with the kids. I had to take Fridays off every two weeks to recalibrate. I've learned to find ways to cope better with our circumstances by including more me time. So when in one of the early interviews, Michael Ray said, we need to incentivize dads to take paternity leave, I had to bite my tongue. I felt like if dads had wanted to step up, then COVID was their perfect opportunity. Yet so many dads didn't. Even if they were working from home, mums bore the burden. And even when women earn more than dads, mums are still bearing the majority of the housework and parenting. Another reason I did not think this was a good idea was because in academia, both parents are given extra time to prepare their promotion files. But what this results in is more dads having time to be productive and moms 
and mums focusing on child rearing so that it creates greater disparities. Likewise, during COVID, men publish many more articles than women, despite similar acceptance rates by gender, i.e. women were as good at publishing. They just did not have as much time to submit new work. Yet after listening to the dads, I realized there are a group of dads who do want to step up, who don't want the corporate stress, but who are struggling to get a foot through the door at home for several reasons. One, they don't know what to do. They have not received the same cultural education in parenting that women receive from family or friends. In fact, they often feel so excluded from the conversation that it's hard to even ask for advice. Two, society portrays them as bumbling idiots, so it's difficult to feel confident that they can do what it takes without making rookie mistakes, especially without the skills development or time to practice. Three, Women hold onto dominion of the home front in similar ways that men hold onto dominion in the workplace. And four, there is an assumption that mums know best. Yet as Derek Reynolds explained, a black mother cannot teach her son how to behave in certain situations where she would not be seen as threatening, but a black man would. Black boys need black men as role models. Likewise, Jago pointed out, Beyond the breastfeeding period, why do we think women make better parents? Parenting is hard, and a dad's perspective can be equally beneficial at problem solving. Dads today aren't the draconian authorities of the past. Many men who have felt trapped in their career or stuck on the outside can help children build resilience. Another reason why incentives might work is because men are penalized if they do want to be an active dad. So yes, there is a fatherhood bonus and a fatherhood forfeit. The fatherhood bonus is when companies see new dads as being more committed to being the breadwinner and provide a higher salary to support their growing family. At the same time, companies see mums as less committed because of their maternal duties. So they pay less, promote less, and reduce opportunities for travel and growth. This is the motherhood penalty and the maternal wall. In academia, the penalty is equivalent to a five-year career gap, and this penalty plays out across women's lives, leaving many more elderly women in poverty. But the fatherhood forfeit also exists. This is when men who want to be dads ask for support to be dads, to take leave or to have flexible work schedule. In this situation, though, not only are they mocked publicly by political leaders, but they are likely to be treated worse than mothers making the same request. Dads who want to be dads sink to the bottom of the workplace priority list. Finally, there are dads who've broken through these stereotypes and are the main parent or solo caregivers. They are role models for how to care in the modern world, but they still face scrutiny. The question is still, where's mum? and there's very little product support directed at them. Everything is mum tested and mum approved. It's such a missed opportunity. So because of all these downsides to being an active dad and the cultural norms against it, it does make sense to incentivize dads to take leave, or as they do in Denmark, mandate it. As mothers, we need to make sure that we actively step away from the home when dads are supported to take their turn. So let's review some of the specific lessons 
that I learned from each guest. From Eric Atherill, I learned about the Deloitte report that always on, always available leads to gender inequality. From Aaron Hip, I was reminded how hard it is to say no when you're passionate about your work. From Dan Flanagan, I realized there are not spaces for dads together and be supported. From Jing Young, I learned about the struggles of men expressing their emotions. From Derek Reynolds, I saw the insanity of the justice system that would prevent a social worker seeing his son. Jago Brown provided insight into equity systems at home and work. Jasper Schrockerdine shared a novel co-parenting approach and an exercise in how to find your team's source of energy. Eric Zimmer provided perspective on finding more focus through fulfillment. Ian Dinwiddie took me through the steps of learning to be an active dad. Jeremy Smith provided me with hope that things were changing. From Charles Daniels, I felt the pain of absent fathers. From Art Eddy, I saw what being on the outside had taught him. Brian Anderson provided a shining example of servant leadership at home and work. Nahal Metra showed how appreciating each other is important. Aaron Coleman demonstrated that even entrepreneurs can take a sabbatical and celebrate their achievements. And finally, Michael Ray, one of the first interviews I conducted, but the one that I aired last. He convinced me that men need more support to step up and that we'll all benefit if they do. From all the dads, I had the best dad jokes that I shared with my kids. It became their daily request. What was the dad joke of the day? I also asked my son to listen to these episodes. These were examples of dads that I wanted him to hear, to hear the realities and struggles, the ups and downs. My husband listened to them too. I had hoped to interview him as the season wrap up, to hear what he had learned. I was looking forward to us talking through some of the challenges we have faced and sharing with listeners the journey we have been on to a point now where we really do value each other much more than we ever did before. But we're in the middle of moving house and most of the stress has fallen on him. Besides, his dad joke would have been wholly inappropriate. So what next? I already have a full season five all recorded, but I'll be taking a short hiatus before then. My podcast assistant, Amy, is now a full-time social worker. I've been so grateful for her help. As she transitions and I work on some rebranding, I'll be waiting till September to launch season five, focusing on systems change. Let me give you a little heads up about who will be featured so you're excited to listen in. The season will start with system experts explaining how systems change. We will then transition to authors writing about systems and culture change. Finally, we'll lead into examples from different industries and different size companies. So we'll start with Emma Proud, who'll tell us about using systems change theory in global development and using the yes and improv comedy game to build a joint vision. Laura Hammer will share her tips on how to create organizational change through culture change. Alex Budak, author of Changemakers, explains how mindset plus action leads to change. Helen Cup, author of How the Future Works, shares how team agreements around meeting schedules and purpose can create more intentional fairness and flexibility. Julia Boston, author of When Women Lead, 
describes women leaders who changed their industries. Kim Scott, author of Radical Candor and Just Work, explains how radical feedback can create greater psychological safety. Olivia Wagner, author of Right Leader, Right Time, shares how leaders such as Carol Bernstein created a family-first organization. Now moving to the business cases. Rachel Shemarani of Barron Markets shared how she motivated reduced work hours and took more vacation to role model life outside of work. Aaron Tabaco of UCSF School of Medicine describes how his team increased employee engagement during COVID and how meeting breaks and local connection hubs support team members' mental health. Rosa Safranek from HR Hints shares rituals and communication tools that entrepreneurs can use during the stressful startup period when burnout is rife. Kim Roher and Tony Jamis from Oyster detail how despite concerns, they created a mental health Slack channel, which CEO Tony posts to regularly and how his board and funders purposely support his vision for parenting employees. Dr. JB of Hope for Med describes creating safe spaces for physicians to share their concerns in a virtual world. Melissa Cooper from Global Partners shares how they created caring circles, golden collaboration hours, and paid leave with best practice guidelines used across the industry. Jared Pope from WorkShield explains how a third party process to resolve HR issues quickly can transform workplace culture. Jennifer Harris-Kroll from Amtil, which is a secure communication system for remote workers, describes the loyalty she has developed because the company supported her when she burned out. Karen Price from Progress explains what companies can really do to change culture and maximize employees' potential through policies and practice. Kelly Robinson from PKR shares how she supports the well-being of her employees during the workday. Stephanie Mercado from NAHQ describes how changing credentialing requirements changed her industry's values. And Art Shake from Circle It shares that his company's purpose for a family member to leave a digital legacy was matched by his attention to the importance of health and family time for his employees. And finally, Katika Roy from Pipeline Equity provides the key steps to creating pay equity. I'm still collecting culture change stories where both people and systems change. So please connect with me on LinkedIn to share yours. I will also be launching a LinkedIn newsletter shortly about applying behavior change strategies to business problems. So I'll record those and share them. And don't forget to listen to any missed episodes or old favorites to the podcast returns in the fall. I will also be going to an every other week schedule in the fall to keep my own burnout at bay. As I mentioned, I'm also considering some rebranding. I have been working on a program called Leading Culture Change, increasing business impact without suffering burnout, using the science and practice of changing people and systems. This program is for action-oriented change makers who are struggling to lead culture change because there isn't a blueprint for being strategic in this new norm, and you need reliable tools and processes to allow you to be agile and effective. 
Your employees and the business are depending on you to have impact. You care deeply about DEI, employment engagement, and well-being, but your plate is overfull and taking a deep breath is not working anymore. You can't face another cheerleading event that leaves you drained and wondering, will anything really change? You can imagine a sustainable, healthy, diverse workforce where innovation, growth, and wellness reinforce each other, but it seems like you're climbing an insurmountable wall to get there. And the idea of leading organizational change feels overwhelming and downright scary. Yet at the same time, doing nothing is untenable. Doing nothing means you endorse this toxic work culture. Doing nothing perpetuates bias and burnout. The status quo sucks, but how do you start to change people and systems? My three-step fix the workplace formula will help you build the sustainable, healthy, diverse human workplace of your dreams and create the ideal company to work for that your employees and job candidates are demanding. Step one is plan. My leading culture change training will provide you with the tools and processes to build your own roadmap for how to lead people and systems change. The training will help you analyze the status quo and strategically plan for change. I'll teach you how behaviors and systems change, going beyond awareness and using ongoing social learning tools. I'll provide a social norm impact assessment tool to guide the strategies you want to use based on a logic model designed to impact retention, innovation, and growth. You will learn how to create the foundational conditions of psychological safety, emotional intelligence, and burnout prevention. I'll provide you with the tools and strategies needed to create lasting change, including multi-level root cause ecological analyses of common workplace problems at the intersection of race and gender, and a healthy work habits action plan. You'll learn how to lead learning collaboratives where shared decision-making, experimentation, and quality improvement cycles drive problem solving and innovation. I'll take you through guided exercises to help you build your blueprint so you can be agile and effective, including role modeling new behaviors, redefining the system, engaging champions, overcoming barriers, supporting change in others, rewarding the change you want to see aligned with your ESG, and creating your plan for sustainable change at scale. Step two is act. My leading culture change learning collaboratives will provide you with the supportive environment of group coaching matched with the accountability, progress evaluation, and positive reinforcement of behavior change strategies. It builds on evidence from healthcare, business, and global development that shared decision-making will lead to greater innovation, that small experiments led by end users will create more adaptable and resilient solutions, and that social learning has the biggest impact on individual and group change. During a 12-week period facilitated by me, you'll meet with three other leaders of change to share your experiences, celebrate your wins, give and receive feedback, and help with problem solving. This is your chance to road test your ideas in a safe and supportive environment, to build your confidence and mastery in gradually more challenging situations, and to thrive in a community of practice with other leaders of change. You'll set goals around specific changes to bring more focus, flexibility, fairness, and purpose to your organization. 
you can use these experimental phases to better understand barriers within your organization and to create small wins that will help you communicate the benefits of an alternative way of leading culture change. Step three is adapt. My leading people and systems change process will support you to create new social norms in your organization that you can implement at scale using the scientific but practical change tools and processes that you have already mastered. With my support, you'll seek feedback on your culture change leadership vision. You'll empower champions to help build the foundational conditions needed for change. You will incentivize new experimental approaches to workplace problem solving, assessing progress with the social impact assessment tool. And you'll create new policies and procedures that reward the behaviors you want to see in a sustainable, healthy, diverse workplace. In the process of developing a new culture, you'll address the fears of those more comfortable with the old culture, and you'll engage system stabilizers to share strengths that can be carried forward. This work will not happen overnight, but if you focus on the daily behaviors that are tied to the outcomes you want to see, and if you operationalize new values in daily decision-making, you'll be able to have noticeable and immediate impact on your people and the system. If you want to learn more about this, please follow me on LinkedIn under Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, and I'll be posting more about this over the next months. In particular, if you want to be part of the inaugural cohort who has the important job of giving me feedback and guidance, then please direct message me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. And I look forward to sharing more stories soon. Take care. Take control, you're a fighter. Push the limits and see it, you're already there. Told you we going higher. Ain't no stopping us, we're going in for the win. And we're gonna celebrate. Then we're gonna do it all over again. And we're gonna rock this place. Cause this is our day. Feel the